Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Chris Rush to reflect on his past 15 years working in the football industry and recent circumstances following his departure from Blackburn Rovers. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Connor. Chris, it's great to have you on. Um, you've obviously recently been in the news and recently detailing on LinkedIn and to The Athletic, um, reflecting on the reasons behind your departure from football. However, could you just begin, I suppose, by giving everybody listening a background of your experience in 15 years working in the industry today? Yeah, I, um, I probably, as a 17-year-old, worked out that I wanted to work in football. You know, I didn't know until that point that, that it was an option. I think going back, you know, nearly 20 years now to that point, um, sports science and support staff members in football wasn't prevalent, but there was a football and science degree at Liverpool, John Moores, um, which I found out about when I was 17. And once I realised that that, that, was a, that was an option to work in professional football, which I'd obviously, you know, I love football all my life, then, then I pursued that. So I um, studied at Liverpool, John Moores for three years, got my undergrad and um, did some part-time work at the back end of that with Preston. And obviously time is very, very different to what they are now. I, I came out of that undergraduate degree and went straight into a full-time position working for Middlesbrough. Um, Middlesbrough were one of the first teams at the time, so they were in, they were in the Premier League. This was sort of 2006, I think, if I've got my time scales right. They were one of the first teams to take on the GPS system, so sort of took on an archaic GPS system, was involved in a lot of the data work on that side of things, but also practically working with some of the academy teams and the under-23s team. I had 18 months there and, again, very quickly sort of progressed and, and moved to Man City, uh, working with their under-23s, so basically the under-23s lead with them. Um I had four great years at Man City, so loads of change. You know, I joined before the, the, the current owners took over. So the process had changed when the new, new owners took over and, and um, you know, had some great experiences there. And then after four years, I got um, an opportunity to go and, and work with Blackburn Rovers, uh, working with the first team. Um, again, that, that was a key thing for me, sort of all the time in football, I wanted to go and work with the first team. So took that position, um, moving from Man City to Blackburn. Uh, and was there for pretty much 10 years. Um, loads of loads of ups and downs, a lot of downs initially, and then a bit of an up curve. Um, but yeah, so, so, so 15 years around about that, working in football, um, you know, I had, a, I had a great time, like I say, so, so many great memories, great people that I've worked with, um, enjoyed the, the sort of the day-to-day -day work um, and, and, and brought me to this point. That's fantastic. And I suppose from your initial um, job at Middlesbrough right now to this present day where you've just left Blackburn, of course, 15 years working at that level, you would have been subjected to so many highs, so many lows, you worked at multiple levels within the game with different resource constraints, varying from working in the championship to at an elite level at Man City. Recently, Adam Crafton wrote a piece on The Athletic to which you were a major contributor and was based on the realities behind working at the scenes of a football club. Now, it details the hours worked, basically the insecurities entailed from the nature of the job. I mean, 
leading up to your recent departure from Blackburn, would you say there would have been a gradual change in working conditions over time? Or was there one big inflection point? I, th I think um, I think the process really has been it's very much supply and demand. So so when I started off in football, you know, very little supply of of um, of support staff because because those positions hadn't existed in the past. There was nobody experienced in them. So when you were applying for any jobs, you weren't fighting against anybody with any experience. And if you had a qualification you had a good uh, chance of, of getting one of those jobs. And those jobs were paid accordingly because they wanted to attract people into the clubs. They wanted to make sure that they got good people into clubs. Um, and, you know, I think my entry salary now, entry salary back in 2006, would have been the same as an entry salary full-time position now. So there's been no inflation of wages from what I can see. But also, I'd only have had I only had to study in undergrad to that point, and and not had to go on and fight and find loads of experience and find, you know, loads of different qualifications and accreditations and masters, um, and and like I say, that was that's purely from a supply point of view of people to fulfil those positions. So then, you know, eighteen months later, I go to Manchester City again because I'd had eighteen months at Middlesbrough. It was very quickly, you know, you go to a, a pretty decent sized club in the Premier League with 18 months experience and an undergrad. And, you know, it just wouldn't happen now. But that was the reality because of, of, of the supply. Now, obviously, steadily over time, you know, there's more and more courses, there's more and more opportunities, opportunities for, let's say, voluntary experience. So there's lots of people going out and getting lots of experiences so, so being a head of department, you know, fast forward in 14, 15 years, you look at, you know, you, you advertise for jobs, you look at CVs, it's unbelievable. Firstly, the number of applicants, the quality of the applicants, the amount of experience, the amount of qualifications. From a qualifications and accreditation point of view, for the most part, I might be hiring a junior person who's more qualified than me, you know, and... and, and I think that that is just where we currently are is that that you have to almost you know you've got your three years undergrad you may be a couple of years on your master's you're getting your experience you're getting your accreditations it's almost like a, a doctor's level education and, and experience that you've got to get before you're probably going to get a really good full-time paid position um, and because there's so many people who want to do it you know so uh, vast then naturally that puts a downward pressure on on uh, on what clubs are willing to pay because there's so many people out there that they can that they can hire and potentially for cheaper so I think it's just been a process over time that, that has supplied people that become more and more prevalent it's meant the player uh, clubs aren't pressured to to increase the the, the support or the financial support of, of the staff and I suppose just picking up on one of the points you said there, Chris, was um, the number of applicants and the experience of each applicant applying for the roles. I mean, on the piece itself, I read, you know, you had one contributor stating that, you know, there was guys with PhDs 
applying for internships at football clubs. I mean, on a personal level, Chris, were you surprised at maybe the incredulous reaction from some football fans and not necessarily people involved in the working levels of the game at some of the experiences which you had to account to Adam Crafton on The Athletic and your own LinkedIn post, so to speak, because there seems to be very much, you know, if it was any other industry, crying wolf, you know, with such, you know, low salaries, the hours worked, the insecurities stemming from the nature of the job, that there would be absolute uproar. You think in itself that football is its own worst enemy at times? Yeah, I think, listen, I think that's that's a... I, I don't think you can really get annoyed or frustrated about that. I think that's just a product of, of what it is. Now, when you're... So, so going back to when I'm 17, I'm looking from the outside in to football and I love football and I go and watch football and I play football and everything that I do is football, football, football. I... At that time, would have looked at anybody working in football and thinking, wow, you've got an amazing job, you're so lucky, you know, all these different things. So I understand that perception from the outside. I even understand that perception maybe from people starting out their careers as well. But I think as you get further into it, you, you do see that, that it's, um, you know, highly, it is highly demanding. I know a lot of jobs are highly demanding, but you've got so much lack of control over your personal life, effectively. Um, you know, even if you're an entrepreneur, if you, you own your own business, you may be working those hours and, and it may be an unsuccessful business. So you might not be getting paid very well, but, but ultimately you can still decide whether you go to a wedding, whether you go, whether you go to your kid's birthday, you know, all these different things that you haven't got the freedom to do when you work in football so I know people will hear that and think, well, that's just a sacrifice to be made because that's what obviously gets spoken about with players as well. It's kind of like players should be robots. They just sacrifice everything in their lives because they get to be a professional footballer. And I understand that mentality because of they see the salaries. But you've got to think bigger picture. Like these people aren't robots. They are humans and they do want to go and experience these things in their lives as well. So that is the, that is the reality of being in football and being in football for a, for a longer time that either you become really, really comfortable and accepting of those sacrifices or you don't. And, and, and that's really a position that I got to, you know, I, I was no longer comfortable with those sacrifices, whereas in the past I had been, therefore I made the decision to come out of it, out of football, which you know, it was a, a, a tough decision because I still love the sport. I know that once you can start going to stadiums again, I'll be going and watching a lot of football, watching football on TV. I still love the sport, but I've seen what it is to actually turn your love and your hobby into a profession. And it's very different. And, I mean, when you look at the recent Pacey Performance Survey and sports science staff within British football, produced by the Satanta College. The report itself showed that over two thirds of respondents come from that 25 to 34 age bracket. I mean, we spoke off camera about, you know, at what point does a passion become a profession? You think, I suppose, having such a role in football and being of a certain age 
bracket is mutually exclusive or do the two go hand in hand? Um, it will be interesting how, if that survey is done again in 10, 15 years time, how that looks, because I think, so I think from my side of things, I, um, I've had 15 years full time, no break working in professional football. Now there won't be many people who can jump in it from 21. So maybe if somebody's career started more at, or they're getting to a place where they want to be at 27, 28 and, and 15 years is the time frame, which doesn't necessarily mean it is, but that might look more like 45 or 50, that they get to a point whereby they've experienced the things that they want to experience and think, right, well, I'll step away. The difficulty is that is obviously families, you know, so, so you get through to 50 years of age, kind of potentially your kids have grown up and, and you've missed a lot of things. I think, um, you know, retaining experience um, in the support staffs is really, really important. And, and, you know, if anybody's looking at things in football with, with a bigger picture, um, you know, re retention of experience, I think, is, is, is important. Um, this isn't being disrespectful to junior people coming in to football, but I would say that experiencing things, trial and error, is one of the biggest, most important things in the profession. And, you know, I, I cringe at some of the stuff I did in my early days, you know, and, and it's hard to be two or three or four years into football and, and, and be, you know, a really, really top level practitioner um, because you've not had the, the, the number of experiences in the trial and error to see how things pan out from a long-term perspective. So that the retention of experience is going to be important and it seems like it's not there at the moment you know the, the number of people I'm not exaggerating here genuinely I think I've spoke to so many people in football working at you know really good clubs and they've had brilliant careers and and pretty much everybody is like you know they're saying ah, you know I'm thinking this I was thinking the same thing it's just exit point really you know you've done something for 15 years what do you go and do where do you go and there's got to be something there with that because there can't be so many people with a similar level experience of mine at a similar age kind of saying yeah I can totally see what you're saying and, and I've been thinking the same as much as it seems like it's a a whistleblowing or a dramatization or a um, I don't know, whatever it'd be, the reality is, is it is there, you know, it is there. And of course, Chris, you know, like guys like yourself and your peers that work in the football industry are highly qualified. And of course, you know, 15 years is quite an accurate time to be making, you know, relevant and honest assumptions. But I suppose, you know, in that 15 year time frame, you would have made other friends, other practitioners from other fields, not just in football, but from other sports. How would you say your experience and your ability to engage in CPD, engage in trial and error, as you speak about, how does that differ 
from between practitioners in the football industry compared to other practitioners in other aspects of the sports industry? Um, you know what? I don't know. I don't know because it's, it's, we know football's full on. We know the season's very long. You know that the break isn't maybe as, as long as some other sports. It then gives you opportunity to kind of re relax, reflect, and also maybe go on to some courses that, that, that you can't maybe go on mid-season. Um, but it's very difficult to, for me to kind of say, you know, how different that is in other sports just because I've never experienced it you know I've not got loads and loads of of, of colleagues in other sports um you know it, it's it's a tough one that I think um there's a lot of top clubs who really do support CPD I know at Manchester City I, I would I would bang this drum so much because you know they had a budget for you know you had a personal budget for CPD and it, and it was it was kind of pushed it's like you're not using it, use it, go and do something, go and improve yourself, get yourself better. So I wouldn't say that that, that isn't a focus of some football clubs. I think the lower down you get, where it becomes a little bit more like we're just fighting tooth and nail to win the next game. Um, you know, there's, there's limited resources. It becomes more and more difficult, you know. And I suppose then looking at the micro level, um, Chris, until your recent departure, what did a typical week looked like at Blackburn? Yeah, I mean, obviously very varied and, and game schedule dictates. I mean, probably the, the, the most demanding is the two game weeks. Um, you know, the, obviously Christmas and Easter are probably the two most demanding periods, probably psychologically, because families are doing loads of different fun stuff, but you're at work. I think the typical two game week for most clubs, you know, there's a lot of clubs who are just in now. They're just in seven days a week. Um, I think especially top clubs, um, you know, they're just in all the time. I think, um, I won't name the club, but I heard that, you know, one club was in for like 24 days straight um, just because of the game schedule. But for us or what I would have experienced, it would have been, you know, let's say that you've got a, uh, a Saturday game, you played Saturday, you come in and do recovery Sunday, you train Monday, you'd obviously play Tuesday, potentially have the Wednesday off, so that would be the day off. You train Thursday, train Friday, play Saturday again. Um, I'd say that's the atypical schedule in a two-game week. A one-game week would be very, very specific to the manager and, and how they do it. Again, there's this discussion about around six day weeks, five day weeks, what's the best training schedule coming on a Sunday for a recovery and have Monday off and all these factors that they're shrouded in science and experience. But again, if you have Monday off and not Sunday, you're having your day off on your own and you're working on the day when everyone else is off. So, and these, these are the factors of the sport, really. And, I mean, of course, you know, when you look at yourself 16, 17 years ago doing that Bachelor of Science degree at John Moores in Liverpool, would you have been aware at the time of, say, what you were signing yourself up for, the hours worked, the salaries, so to speak? 
No, but what I would say is, even if I'd have known, I'd have done it. <laughs> if I, you know, yeah, no, I, I, because I wouldn't. I think when you're that that age, you know, and and you've not experienced something. It doesn't matter, you know, and, and this is why I think this is not me saying that the situation um, is not right. It, well, it isn't right, but the situation it shouldn't happen. It is what it is. You know, there's people, me being included, going back, who'll go, I'm, I'll, I'll work 60 hour weeks. I'll get paid nothing as long as I can work in football and I can get the experience. I'm not bothered. That's all I want to do. That's my passion. That's my love. And, and that's fine and that's fair. Um, as long as people's eyes are open to it, like I say, for me personally, it wouldn't have changed my decision. I'd have still worked in football. Um, whether if I was entering now, I'd have stuck it out as long is another question and I don't know. But um, I, I think I, I would have still done it. I would have still done it, sure. I think you know, when you speak to anybody involved at any aspect of the football industry, be it an academy level, sports science level, people involved in fan engagement, the commercial side of the game, you know, when you look at these topics in isolation, of course, we all have a burning desire to work, you know, with respect to them. But I think there's that overarching thing, we're all bounded by working in football. And I think it's sad to say when you know, one of the questions I mentioned earlier on to you, you know, at what point does a passion become a profession? You know, there are sad times indeed. But I, I think it's just when more information becomes readily available over time. So, I mean, fast forward 15 years, we spoke off camera, you know, a wage you would have been on 15 years ago is pretty much comparable to what guys are receiving now. And that doesn't show, you know, any ascension over time. It doesn't show any inflation any improvement in working conditions. I suppose where I'm coming from with this question is, Chris, I mean, having attended a football-specific university myself, UCFB, and yourself at Liverpool, John Moores, do you believe now these universities have more of an onus upon them to actually, you know, detail to students, you know, what exactly the realities are working in, within the industry? Uh, yeah, definitely. I can't say that that doesn't happen already. I, I, I'm not sure. Again, I, I, I you know, I've not, um, I've not done a, a course for so long that I don't know. Um, you know, someone, someone who I've, I've kept in contact throughout my career, Barry Drust. I know that, you know, I have conversations with him. He is so 100% tuned into this. Someone who's been a massive uh, program leader in terms of. Of, of, of football and he's he's there's a lot of people in English football who've come underneath his wing whether it's uh, doing their undergrads their masters their PhDs and I know for a fact he very much understands and appreciates and communicates the demand and and, and the you know how how difficult difficult's the wrong word but demanding uh, is working in football so I can't say that that happens at every single institute. And I know that institutes from the top level, obviously it is a numbers game and getting people through the door and um, fight, you know, financial from financial reasons, it's important. So deterring people before they even embark on it is probably not going to happen. 
but I think once people have, have, have sampled an undergraduate, I'd like to think that they would have a, a good, uh, at least knowledge of, of what the demand is. I still think until you experience it, it's very difficult for you to make a judgment. You know, if someone's saying to you, right, you know, you're going to get minimum wage and you're going to work 50 hours a week and you're not going to be able to have a choice really on when you go on holiday or whether you go on to this or this family event or whatever. I think the majority of people are just say, I take that and, 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 and then maybe see how it goes for a year or two or three. And I think, again, that's a common thing that's happening in football, not just people with experience are coming away from the game, but people are maybe coming in and sampling it for a couple of years and thinking, now nah, this isn't for me, um, which is fine she's fine. I think it's maybe too much at the moment. And, and some of those things are rectifiable. Um, but again, that, that, that is the reality whereby universities can obviously profess on the demand and they should profess on the demand of the job. Ultimately, I'm sure people are going to want to make their own decision anyway. Of course. I mean, I think one key point, which you alluded to earlier on, Chris, was that trial and error, so to speak. And, you know, what we discussed off camera once more about people, you know, putting their life, so to speak, on autopilot, putting on the blinkers, just saying, yeah, single focus, narrow mindedness, I'm going to work in football without having amassed all the necessary information to make, you know, a decent decision, so to speak. You know, from my own experience entering the industry, I mean, from speaking to people, to people, you know, um, on a similar scale as myself and people above with countless years of experience, just being in an environment now at an academy level, learning from people from all corners of the globe on a daily basis. You know, it's not um, a linear journey. It's very much non-linear development. And, you know, for me, as you said earlier on, you didn't want your own post on LinkedIn or your interview with The Athletic to seem like you know, you're a whistleblower, so to speak. But I think it really does take somebody like yourself speak about the working conditions within the football industry and really think pacey performance um, salary index. I think once more objective information becomes available about the profession, I think that's only when we'll be able to see change. But going forward, Chris, I mean, do you think there can be changes made in the short term? such as, I mean, regulation changes, a formal union, which has been mentioned in the athletic piece, or do you think over time it's going to take all parties, it's going to be more of a cultural change? Yeah, I think um, the formal union, you know, in the athletic piece, kind of the formal union thing is, is something that, that, that I just brought up as, a, as an example of what potentially could be done. I'm not sure how much that would solve because, you know, the players union is unbelievably strong, but for obvious reasons, players, uh, you know, decide they're not playing tomorrow. There's no football. You know, if, if a sports scientist or a physio or a group of support staff decide that they're not going to work, the, the club can still operate. And I get that. And that is why footballers are paid millions of pounds and, you know, support staff have played a very small percentage of that. But so, so I think the strength of a union is 
it's only it's only as strong as the members and and i think it it may be difficult to to instigate i don't know minimum pay outside the government levels minimum pay um things these things could happen i just think it would be really really difficult what i think would be i think information's really important objective information so when we're talking about inflation and salaries you know i'm just going off my experience but when i see what i've been paid through my career um maybe an understanding of what other people have been paid during their career and what people get paid now i would be very surprised if if salaries have moved with inflation um I'm pretty 99% sure they haven't. I can say entry salary in 2006 was pretty much the same as what the entry salary is now. So that's 15 years worth of uh, uh, inflation, which, you know, that, that that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, information on that side of things would be powerful so whether you did whether there's another another questionnaire or data gathering you know looking at maybe more experienced staff and 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 their salaries at x point in time for this position and comparing to now and just seeing the extent of whether salaries have been moved with the times how that compares to other professions how that compares to you know probably the most uh, battered people and financially nurses, how that compares to footballers because footballers' wages have massively been inflated and they have moved with the additional influx of money that's come into the sport. So obviously from a, I think back in 2011, 12, when Blackburn were in the Premier League, I think the TV rights were around about 30 million. Now they're 100 million plus. So you're talking triple the amount of income, which is a mainstay of most clubs' income, is the is the TV money. So the income and the revenues tripled, but support staff salaries have basically stayed the same level. So someone needs to come to me and tell me how that seems right. I'm not saying that they should have tripled, but I'm just saying there's got to be somewhere in between the two, surely. And I think information showing lack of inflation of wages, you know, increase in revenues, inflation of players' wages, maybe inflation of managers' wages, and how does that compare to the support staff is important. And if people at the top decide, you know what, it is what it is, get on with it or don't, then then you've got your answer. You are where you are. You would think once more information, as you speak about Chris, becomes readily available and accessible, that circumstances will change. Now, more importantly, since leaving football, Chris, what have you been getting up to? <laughs> well, the, listen, this is the other side of things. So so my, 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 my major reason of leaving football, I think this has become a little bit um, <laughs> misunderstood, really. Um there's obviously people who work in football, you know, just want to work in football. You think about, we talked off camera, I was saying, you know, someone like Roy Hodgson, you know, just completely de- dedicated to football the whole his whole life because that's what he wants to do. Whereas for me personally, as I've gone through working in football, I've loved it and loved the memories and, and, and working with the people I've worked with. But then you realise you want variety in life and you want to do different things. And, 
you can't really do that in football because the demand is there that you can't have the time to step away and have a few months doing something or, or whatever it is. Um, and I don't necessarily see it as a, as a decision from a burnout point of view as much as just wanting to continue to enjoy life and, and pivoting onto something a bit, a bit different. So for me, um, I've still kind of got my toe in. I'm working with a company called Kairos, who, who are a scheduling comms company, um, who you know I, I've uh, touched base with when, when I was when I was leaving Blackburn and was really impressed with their system. So I mean, doing a day a week, just um, working with them, consulting with them. Um, but for the majority of the rest of the time, I'm I'm um, I'm involved with property basically. So. I've, um, I've purchased a property to renovate, um, but it's not just a financial thing. It's actually going to get my hands dirty and going on tiling courses and plastering courses and plumbing courses and seeing how much work I can do myself, learning new skills, you know, working with my hands really and, and going and doing something completely different and, and, you know, starting from the bottom again, really, which is where I am. I'm basically a 17 year old working in the, the property uh, industry which is again it's motivating it brings variety to life and you know spending time with a family and and you know I can go and do a 60 hour week if I want to do one but if I want to do no hours in the week I can do that as well I'm not going to miss any family events anymore I'm going to the lads cricket training session this afternoon um, I'm pretty sure Blackburn are away so I would have missed that um you know, all these different things, it's, it's, it brings, I've got a variety to life, whereas I've loved what I've done for 15 years, but it was very, very fo- focused on one thing. Now I've got the opportunity to do a lot of different things. I think certainly um, that statement, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> I think that's what you're looking at. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, that is me, but again, that's me. That's not necessarily everybody and I think again that's why people will be confused with the decision that I've made because that won't be their mindset and that's fine that's not like a competition of who's right or wrong there's no black and white right or wrong answer it's just everybody pursues what they want to pursue really and and there's lots of people in football who will work in football until somebody kicks them out you know because that's their their love that's what they want to do that's their identity in life and um you know, it's great that those people have that, you know, but my decisions are just just different. I think that's such an important clarification to make as well, Chris, that, you know, no two people are the same in life, you know, and that's with respect to football as well. We speak about nonlinear development. And I think, you know, when you come to make a decision such as yours, it's not just black or white. You have to look at the holistic big picture, so to speak. And I think that's something which you've, Sean, over the last 30 or so minutes. Um, Chris, from a personal point of view, I'd like to take this time to thank you for coming on. Wish you and your family all the luck and success going forward. And um, hope to have you on again in the future. Top man. Oh, th- thanks very much for the invite. And um, it's, been, uh, it's been great chatting. Thanks, Connor. Top man. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. <laughs>